All right, everyone ready? I hope so. Book of Jude, Book of Jude. Book of Jude, and I think I went... Book of Jude. All right, we have been working on this for a little while now. We're going to, uh, well, we're going to have some disagreements with outlining, I think, but we'll see where this goes. Book of Jude. We, uh, what, how did we outline the first section of the Book of Jude? What did we call it, if anyone remembers? The greeting, the greeting. All right, and what verses did that cover? Verses 1 and 2, and what were, things were identified in the greeting? We have the author identified, yes. And the author identifies themselves as the servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James, right? What else is identified in the greeting? The recipients, and how are they identified? Sanctified, preserved, and called. Okay, and then what else do we have in the greeting? A blessing, and what's the uh, parts of that blessing? Mercy, peace, and love. Okay, all of that was in the greeting. Then what did we call the next section? The purpose. And what verses did that cover? Three and four. And what was identified in the purpose of, what was identified in this section that we label the purpose? We, we understand that he was going to write and talk about something else, yes, which was he was going to write to them about the common salvation, but something happened. A need arose, right? And what was that need? To exhort them that they should earnestly contend for the faith that was once delivered unto the saints. So the purpose of the letter is to challenge them, plead with them, beg them to do what? Contend for the faith. And we talked about all the things that would be required for someone to, to adequately contend for the faith. Yes? Now, why is he telling them they need to contend for the faith? For there are certain men, crept in unawares, who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our, of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Because someone had crept into the church and they came in in what way? Unawares, uh, one translation says they came in stealth. They came in by stealth. All right. So they came in unaware. Now, what, what is significant about the fact that they came in in a stealth like way or in a way that no one was aware of? What is significant about that? They were probably just a part of the congregation and looked like everyone else and made a profession of faith. And you never would have realized it, never even noticed that that's the danger. And what is significant, what, what is significant uh, for us to realize that typically the danger facing the church is not the danger that is with outside of the church. It's always the danger from where? Within, because all of the dangers without that everyone wants to complain about, how do they end up inside the church? I've talked about this in countless podcast episodes. You bring it in. You bring it in. Remember the way the problems of, think of it this way. And, and I've said this a million times. And I, I, it's just, to me, it's an it's a idea that Christians need to better, better understand. As the culture is today, the church will be tomorrow. 
The church is always behind culture, but it's always following culture. I'm not saying that's the way it should be. It's just the way it is. And why does it work that way? Because where do you spend most of your life? In the world. You breathe it in. You breathe it in, right? It's like secondhand smoke. You may know it's dangerous. You may know it's bad, but you're breathing it in. You can't get away from it. Now, the problem is a lot of times Christians breathe it in and not even realize they're breathing it in because you have a very important scriptural mandate, which is to take every thought captive. It's your job to be able to identify ideas, philosophies that are not consistent with a biblical perspective and not allow that to reshape or to merge it with your Christianity. But a lot of times we will take concepts and ideas, not even realizing we're, bre- we're breathing it in, and then we, we have this weird way within the Christian world of taking a concept that really isn't biblical, but what do we do? We try to make it biblical. We try to, we try to merge it with our Christianity, which ultimately begins to rewrite and redefine what Christianity is. So that whatever, sometimes you'll look around at what everyone thinks Christianity is, isn't biblical or the faith once delivered unto the saints. It's not being changed in a sense by the world. It's being changed by people inside the church. Because you've got to identify, you've got to be able to know what the the wrong philosophy is. You've got to be able to identify it. And you've got to ensure, you've got to see how it's impacting the way you think. We spend so much time running around how it's impacting other people. You've got to look in the mirror and how it's impacting you. And many times Christians are so way behind the curve, right? So obviously the dominant philosophical system that has dominated the culture for a a while would be postmodernism. Now, sadly, you get 10 Christians in a room and ask them to identify postmodernism. Most of them cannot. However, you listen to them talk and you say, hmm, well, you may not know what it is, but clearly you've been breathing it in. And what what I say this about church history and I say this about philosophy. Ignorance of it does not negate its influence upon you. Just because you can't identify what postmodernism is, just because you may not be able to identify it in a movie, a song, a novel, doesn't mean you haven't been influenced by the philosophy. Well, the church in many cases ignored postmodernism until about 15 years too late. And then all of a sudden it's like, write books about it, have a conference about it, preach about it. It's 15 years too late. Well, anyone looking at philosophy knows that now we're not in the postmodern era. We're in the post-postmodern era. And what that is, is still trying to be defined. We're in a transitional period philosophically Culture-wide, we're, we're, we're changing the philosophical mindset. Now, the church will be like, ah, we don't care. Who cares? Who cares? Well, you don't care now, but guess what? That's going to be infiltrating the church over the next 10 to 15 years. And whatever that philosophical system is, because it always takes a while before it's defined, whatever we, we call the post, postmodern era and philosophy, it will come into the church. And then the church will be like, oh, wait, we got to do something about it. Well, you should have started in about 2020. But nobody cares in the church. And so we ignore, we ignore until it's too late. I, I, I will never understand the church's mentality in doing that. We don't pay any attention to what's going on. 
and then we're impacted by it. Then, then all of a sudden, they'll do surveys going, man, what's happened to the church? They don't understand this, or they think this way. It's like it started way back there. It started way back there, but we didn't care because we have this mentality that, and so, some Christians have this mentality, philosophy bad, I don't need it because I just have my Bible. Well, you can have that mentality and say philosophy is bad, but guess what? It's still going to impact the way you think. Your job is to be able to do what? Identify it. Well, for them, what was the philosophy that made it inside the church? It's right there in Jude. It's open book. Someone came into the church with a new, we'll say a philosophy, an idea, a perspective, a theology about God's grace, where they turned grace into lasciviousness. But guess what? It wasn't, it wasn't those bad you know, liberals out there. It was happening inside the church. And they didn't realize it. There was a way of thinking that it infiltrated the church. Now, we talked last week, we spent a lot of time talking about how they had turned basically grace into license. And sometimes the way people fight something is go to the opposite extreme, where we basically take away grace and replace it with legalism, which is a problem. So we discussed all of that. So I just want you to just see that is so significant into everything we've been talking about. Now, that brings us to what? Yes, which means... Well, either we call this part of the purpose, right? Which would not make any sense. So we have to do what? Establish a new part of our outline, yes? So again, let's go through. What's the first part of our outline? Greeting covers what verses? One and two. Second, number number two? Purpose, which, uh, did I, are, are we confused? Okay, all right. I'm like, oh boy, I hope we have this right. Okay, so greeting verses one through two, purpose verses three and four, and then that brings us to verse five, which will start the new section. And what do we call the new section? Well, if we, depending on the different sources you look at, have a source right here who calls verses five through 16, exposure of false teachers. Okay. That could possibly work. I'm not a fan of it, right? And let's see if we can figure out why I'm not a fan of it. What does verse 5 say? How does verse 5 begin? I will therefore, now therefore goes back to what? The purpose, right? The purpose. Here's the purpose of the book. What's the purpose of the book? Hey, guys you got to contend for the faith because people have crept in. Now, I will therefore, right, because of the, what is happening, he's going to do what? Put you in remembrance. Stop right there. The word remembrance is used, and you know like how, how I like to build my outlines, right? How do I like to build them? From the text. Why do we do that? Well, what's the number one rule? Now, not everyone answer. I'm gonna, I, people, some of you I know already know the answer. Some of you may not be so sure. I want the people not so sure to answer, okay? What's the number one rule in outlining a biblical passage? It's the number one rule that cannot be forgotten. It's, it's a, an offense worthy of excommunication. All right, maybe that's a little far, okay? But 
What is the number one rule? Okay, there, there you go. The number one rule is if your outline includes an interpretation, your outline is invalidated and to be thrown out. Why can't an outline have an uh, interpretation in it? Outline is what kind of a tool? Observational tool. An observational tool. What are the what are the basic what's the basic rules of Bible study? What do you do first? Read. Second. Observe. Third. Interpret. Fourth. Apply. You, most of Bible study is observation. 80% of Bible study is observation, 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 observation. Why is it that way? You can't interpret what you haven't observed. The quality of your observation determines the quality of your interpretation. Bad observational skills, bad interpretive results, okay? Does that make sense? You have to observe, 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 observe. And what's the key, what's the keys to observation? Read, 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 read. Okay, you got to read it. What's the minimum? Five times, minimum of five times. One of those times out loud. See, I've got these things, right? You got to read it. Okay, what's next? What's the, what's the best pair of glasses you can have when it comes to observation? No, pencils. Yeah, okay. Well, that, that's a different principle, but yeah, it's important. You, ha- you have to write, okay? What you read and what you write increases your ability to see, right? So uh, you have to have one, a notebook and a pencil. You got to write. And when you're writing, what are you writing? Not in your interpretations, but your observations, Right? Like if we were to do a chapter summary method, right? What are some of the things you look for in a chapter summary method? Well, you outline. Okay, outline, which is just what? Taking what's on the page and putting it on paper. Because that forces you to do what? Observe, observe, right? It makes you see it. You've got to see it there and you've got to see it on the paper you're writing, right? So that's observation. What are some other things you look for? Key words. Key people. Key verse. Right? Okay, yeah. Okay. Well, I'm not going to go back and teach the whole method, okay? Obviously, we need to teach it again. Okay, so, but these are some basic concepts that you have to get down, right? So, when I look at this, yes, everyone wants to go to exposure of false teachers. I'm not saying that that's uh, that's not a clear violation, because I think there's a little bit of that going on, but I immediately just focus on on what word? Remembrance. He's going to put them in remembrance. So I'm going to call this section remembrance, right? He's going to he's going to make them remember something. Now, what is implied there? Now, what he's getting ready to put them in remembrance of is common knowledge to the people he is writing. He's going to take common knowledge and apply it 
He's got, well, think of it this way. He's going to take past knowledge and apply it to the present situation for them. Now, what do we need? To, what, what would be a good thing to do as a Bible student at this point? We need to find everything he reminds them about. All right. Now, I know in most churches, the pastor would do this for you. But you're in the wrong church. Right? Because I don't want you just sitting there drooling on yourself. I want you sitting there. I want you involved in doing this. Okay? So, let's go through this. All right? The first place the word remembrance is used is in verse 5. Right? Okay. What does he put them in? What's the first thing he reminds them of? Okay. All right. So we'll just call the first thing he reminds them of is what? Deliverance from Egypt, I guess. Or you could say the judgment after deliverance may be a better way to state it. How How do you think we should state it? Because everyone's focusing on the deliverance, but the emphasis is not on the deliverance. <laughs> the inference is on the fact some people die. So I would say dis- destruction after deliverance from Egypt. Make sure you include Egypt in there so you know exactly what you're talking about. So there's the first reminder. Remember, remember how people were destroyed after being delivered from Egypt. Everybody got that? Okay. So far, so good? All right, there's number one. What's number two? Yeah, we have this really bizarre thing in verse 6 that has led to so much dispute in 2,000 years of church history. But remember, we're not trying to interpret this right now, right? So here's what we need. And the angels, which kept not, and please note, and is going with the idea of remembering, Yes. Okay, And the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. What is the second thing they're reminded of? Judgment of angels. Judgment of angels in this passage. Oh, this passage causes me major headaches. And part of the reason is some believe that he's making a reference to the apocryphal book Enoch. And if he's making a reference to the apocryphal book Enoch, well then does that mean we should view Enoch as part of the canon? This becomes a major church history problem, but we'll we'll get into all that later. Okay, everybody got that? What's the next third thing? Even Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, flesh are set for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. The third thing is the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. Three things he's putting in, in them in remembrance of. What's the first thing? Destruction after deliverance from Egypt. Number two, judgment upon angels. Number three, judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. Right, so far so good. Now, this is where it gets weird because all of a sudden in verse 8, it says, Likewise, also these filthy dreamers defile the flesh, despise dominion, and speak evil of dignities. That doesn't really kind of, that kind of goes with the remembrance, but it's, okay. 
yeah, it's kind of like what, 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 what's happening here? Uh, we'll put it a part of the remembrance, but he's almost trying to apply it in some ways or, or, or doing something with it. But we'll, we'll go ahead and just include it, but we won't make it a separate thing. What happens in verse 9? Michael the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses, durst not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke thee. What in the name of bubblegum's going on here? So what do we do with this? What do you think? What do you think? Well, what's the, what's the number one question we have to ask ourselves right at this point? No. We're trying to move to interpretation. We're not doing interpretation right now, right? We're not doing interpretation. Right? Say that again, Twyla. Is this a part of our, the remembrance section of our outline, or do we start a new section, Right? That's, a, that, that's the question everybody should have. What, what's going on here? What, why, what would be an argument for including it in the section that we've established, which we are calling what? Remembrance. What would be the reason for including it? It's referencing something that's happened in the past. Very good. Okay. All right. So that's what, what would be a reason for not including it? I'll give I'll give the other side an, an option. Are you saying because the previous verse did? Right, the, the previous verse throws a little bit of trouble in, but okay. But if we're just looking at verse nine, what would be an argument against not including it? It does seem really weird and out of place, yes? Okay, possibly. Anybody else? All right, let's go. We'll we'll, we'll skip it for now. Just put a little question mark by nine. Go to verse 10. What happens in verse 10? But these speak thee, but these speak evil of those things which they know not, but what they know naturally as brute beast, in those things they corrupt themselves. Who are but these? Who are these? Is that is that back to the current people? Is that a reference to all the people that's been mentioned in his reminder? So in other words, this would be still connected to the reminder. Does that, everybody see what? Look at verse 12. What happens in verse 12? Or 11. Woe unto them, for they have gone in the way of Cain and ran greedily after the error of Balaam. Right? Okay, um, at, uh, for reward and perished in the gainsaying of Kor. All right, now, th- th- those are all reminding of things in the past, yes? Right. So, 
I'm going to argue that this section all is dealing in some way, shape, or form with reminders. Right? Because Michael the archangel is about something that happened in the past yet, right? He disputed about the body of Moses. Okay? Now, we still got to figure out... Uh, you know, the, uh, likewise, also these filthy dreamers, is that referring to the people who have come into the church? Or is this referring to the people he's using in his examples from the past? Then when he goes into verse 10, but these, is he referring to the people who have come into the church? Or is he referring to the people he's reminding them about in the past? Woe unto them, for they have gone in the way of then he, he names all of these other things. So let's just add all of the reminders that we can find in this text, all right? So let's go back through them again. There's a lot of interpretive issues here to try to figure out, but through observation, we've got to set aside the, the desire to interpret, okay? So let's go through this. What's the first reminder? The destruction after deliverance from Egypt. Number two, judgment on the angels. Number three, Judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. Don't you wish it would just continue that easy? Right? Then verse 8, where you're kind of like, wait, what's going on? Correct? Right? Verse 9. Reminder of Michael's dispute with, about the body of Moses. Right? There we go. Or, or Michael's contending with the devil. You can do that. Michael's contending with the devil. Does everybody like stating it that way? Right? Then what do we have? I'm just, we're going to go with the verse 11 because they name specific things. Cain. Next. Balaam. Yeah, next. Korah, right? There you go. Or gainsaying of Korah, right? Everybody got all those down? So let's go through them one more time. Make sure you have them all down. Everybody ready? The first one. The judgment after deliverance from Egypt. Number two. Judgment on angels. Number three. Sodom and Gomorrah. Number four. Michael's contending with the devil. Number five. Cain. Number six. Balaam. Number seven. Cora, right? Are you, you, know, you, can, you can call them whatever you want or you can just name the individuals, okay? Well, we'll break, we'll break them down however you want to identify them. Those are a lot of reminders, is it not? This whole section is built on pulling from things from, their, from the past that these people would seem to have some understanding of. The implication is they know all of these things. They know all of these things, all right? Now, verse 12 and 13, right? Um, says, these are spots in your feast of charity. Again, we got to identify who are these, these, right? They name them, they describe them as raging waves, okay, seeming to be doing something else. And then what happens in verse, um, and then what happens in verse 14? Enoch, we have once again something being pulled from where? The past. Everybody see that? So let's add verse 14, Right. So in a sense, you see how this is kind of breaking up the text. I think we what I'm trying to demonstrate here is I want you to show that this is one of those situations where your outline doesn't just go verse like here's six verses and here's the next six verses. This is where you almost have to break it up. Where we include some of these verses and we leave some of these verses out. 
And the reason I feel we need to do this is because for some weird reason, he throws these little like commentaries in the middle of it. But there's all of this reminder, reminder, reminder. So I want to group all of the reminders together and throw everything else out. And then take everything else and we'll put it in a separate category. Does that make sense? Right? You see why I would do this? Because if we focus in on the reminders, then we can just look at, okay, what's the significance of this reminder to their situation? What's the significance of this reminder? So now let's do this. You may need to clean up your, your paper a little bit. See, that's why I always tell you to write in what? Pencil, right? Okay, because we're not infallible, right? So here we go. Now, now let's see if this makes a, a little bit more sense. Let's only include the reminders, starting in verse 5. Reminder 1, judgment on those delivered from Egypt. There's no disagreement that that's a reminder, right? Next, judgment of the angels. There's no disagreement that that's a reminder. Number 7, Sodom and Gomorrah. There's no disagreement that that's a reminder. I don't know what's going on in 8, so just leave 8 out. Okay? We may include it later, but for, for, remember, we're just doing observation right now. Yes? What happens sometimes in your study? Your initial observation may change as you continue to do what? More observation, right? So, but you've got to work with your initial observation. So we're going to throw out verse 8, because I don't know really what to do with that. Verse 9, I'm going to say it's a reminder. So we have Michael contending with the devil. Like, what in the world? And why are they fighting over the body of Moses? You talk about just a weird verse that, that, like, what is going on here? Okay, all right. Verse 10, I don't know what's going on again. It's like some commentary. But now in verse 11, guess what? I have reminders. I have three. Reminders of Cain, Balaam, and Korah, right? Would everybody agree? Okay, 12 and 13, I don't know what's going on again. That's okay. And your observation, what do you do in during your observational part of Bible study? Don't worry about what you don't know. Observe what you do know. Because the more you observe what you do know, sooner or later it may give you answers about what you don't know. Okay? All right? Now that brings us to 14, and we have a reminder of whom? Enoch. Just write down Enoch. All right? Okay, now, um, what do we want to do here? Do we have another one that we want? How about verse 17? Verse 15 and 16 may go with Enoch, but we can just set them aside for now. What happens in verse 17? But beloved, remember ye the words which were spoken before of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. What are they to remember here? The words of the apostles. They're to remember the words of the apostles. That seems to all be things to remember. So a good part of the book is what? Reminders. Isn't that interesting? A good portion of the book is simply reminder, 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 reminder. Okay? I, I think that concludes the reminders, yes? So how many total do we have? 
Do we have nine? Does everybody agree we have nine? Yes? Okay, nine reminders. Nine reminders, and what's the goal of these reminders? Is it just lessons? It's to motivate them to do what? Contend for the faith. Remember the purpose of the book? Right? What's the purpose of the book? To encourage them, exhort them to contend for the faith. So this is what, hey, here's your current situation. You've got people who've crept in unawares. You've got to contend for the faith. I'm going to remind you of things in the past that should motivate you to contend in the present. He's reminding them things of the past to motivate them to contend in the present. It's an interesting approach. Is it going to work? I don't know. Right? I mean, how well does it work when you, you know, you, the teenager's complaining about something. You're like, well, back in my day, we walked to school eight miles uphill in the snow in the middle of June. Okay, right? Like, it doesn't usually do a lot of good, right? They're like, whatever, I don't care what you did, right? Sometimes reminders doesn't help. Correct? One, in those cases, you're reminding them of something they never experienced. In this case, though, they're at least reminding, and these people have never experienced these things either, Right? He's reminding them of things way in the past. So you can probably imagine there's some sitting there going, whatever, whatever. That's so yesterday. I don't care. Right? Well, I'm not saying we don't. I'm just saying that that, this is the approach. I'm just saying this is the approach. We don't know. We don't know if it worked. Right? Right? I mean, we, we could try to f- dig through history and see if we get any insight. I don't know how well it worked, but this is the approach being taken. And in and, and a roundabout way, what's happening here? He's reminding them, and he's reminding us. So I don't know if it worked for them. I will call into, I will, I will argue, I don't know how well it's worked on us. Right? That, 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 that could be a whole discussion right there. So that, that breaks down. The, you're like, what, what do we do with all these verses we left out? We'll have to figure that out later because now we work on which section? The reminders, which is going to take us pretty much to 2027, okay? These are, man, there's a lot going on here. Okay, so let's just start with the first one today, all right? What's, that took a lot of time building the outline, but that's okay. I wanted you to see some of the issues with it. All right, so let's start with the first reminder. Everybody ready? Verse 5. I will therefore put you in remembrance, though ye once knew this, how that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that believed not. Seemingly a pretty straightforward reminder. What, what do you find interesting in the reminder? Any, any interesting language there? Seemingly to imply what? They knew this, but they have forgotten it. Now, do you think they have, what do you, what do you, in what way do you think they have forgotten it? Do you think they've simply forgotten the knowledge of it? 
or they have forgotten it in such a way that it's no longer impacting them in the present. Probably, I would assume they know what happened to Israel after being delivered from Egypt. I'm assuming they knew that. So I don't think it's like, oh, I completely forgot about that. But it no longer has any significance on their present situation or in their present way they're living. Right, yeah, yeah. So a lot of times we can forget something in the fact that we know it, but it doesn't, it's not doing anything for us or to us in any meaningful way. All right. So I think that's interesting language. Now, what is the basic or what's the basic elements of this reminder? What's the basic elements of this reminder? We have Israel. That's a basic element. They experience deliverance. And he destroys them that believe not. Now, some will try to use this to make some kind of argument about people losing their salvation. That would, just, that would be a horrible verse to try to use to prove anything like that. Okay, what's the, basic, what's the basic thing he wants them to remember? Is that there were people who were delivered from Egypt, right? Who experienced a physical deliverance. They experienced blessing. They experienced deliverance. They had a a lot of good things going for them. But in the midst of all of those blessings, right? Think of all the things. Think of all the people who were delivered. What were some of the things that they witnessed that we can't even comprehend? They saw that. Well, first of all, they saw the miracles of God. Yes. I mean, that they saw miracles that we couldn't even comprehend. You got the plagues, you got the parting of the Red Sea. I mean, you've got some like amazing things they witness, right? That's 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 some amazing blessings. Someone said they experienced God literally leading them, right? The cloud, the pillar of fire. I mean, basically God's Shekinah glory was right there. They witnessed that. They had a prophet who was basically receiving direct revelation from God. So they had God's word. They had God's direction. They had God's blessing. They had God's provision. They had God's protection. They had all of this. But in spite of all of that, or think of it this way, in spite of all of God's grace, see what I'm doing here? In spite of God's grace, because all of the things they received would that not be a part of God's grace? Because of all of God's grace, they experience that grace, they benefit from that grace, and then what starts happening is soon, very early into the story, if you go back and read it. We could go look up all the proof texting, but we know the basic story. What happens? Murmuring, complaining, griping, wanting to go back. And then ultimately, what does it lead to? Well, they make a golden calf, not soon later. They turn to idolatry. But then ultimately, when they get to the promised land, no, going back. Going back. 
complete rejection of God. I mean, to say, to get to that point and say, sorry, you brought us here. We don't know why you brought us here. Clearly, you just want us to die. Clearly, you don't know what you're doing. Is a complete rejection and rebellion against God. They have benefited from all of God's grace, get to a certain point and say, forget you. I'm going to do what? I'm going to do what I want to do. We're going to do what we want to do. They benefited from the grace, and then we're going to turn that grace really into the opportunity to do exactly what they wanted to do. And what was the end result? Destruction. Destruction. Remember, they wandered around 40 years with what happening? Dying. Dying. Remember, we looked at the numbers and how many people died like per hour for 40 years. It was some crazy number, right? Just death, 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 destruction. Now, what is that supposed to do for the people listening to the letter from Jude? Okay, people have taken grace and turned it into an opportunity basically for lasciviousness or to do whatever they want. Now he's giving them a a reminder of the past of a people who experienced God's grace and deliverance who turned it as an opportunity to basically try to do what? Whatever they wanted. And it ended in destruction. Now, here's the million dollar question. What should this, what should this do to the people hearing it? Remember, this is a reminder. What's the, the reminder is to try to get them to do what? To contend for the faith. So what should what should be the motivation here? What should it motivate them to do? I know you're going to just simply say to contend for the faith, but I want you to think about this because I think there's two different ways people would approach this, right? Okay, so you're you're sitting in church, right? You hear this you hear this absolute threatening warning. Hey, remember those people in the past who basically took God's grace to do whatever they wanted to do? They were destroyed. Now, you, you, you have to know this is how it would work. Put it this way. If, depending on the kind of churches you've been in, right? Depending on the kind of churches you've been in. But if you've ever been in a church where the pastor has a, a tendency from the pulpit to voice agreement or disagreement with maybe something going on inside the church, Right? In other words, it gets very personal in the preaching. Sometimes this happens in smaller churches because the pastor is more aware of what's going on and is going to be greatly impacted by it. So sometimes it's very difficult to not stand behind the pulpit and let the, that emotion comes out. So in smaller churches, it's, t- it's, it's more common. And a larger church, the pastor probably doesn't even have a clue of half the things going on in the church and probably doesn't want to know, right? Okay, but in a smaller church, you can't avoid it, right? So sometimes there's a, there's camp A, and there's camp B in the church, right? Whatever the disagreement may be. And if you're in one camp and the pastor gets up and he just throws down a, a warning about judgment and saying that the other side is wrong, what is, the, what, is the, what is the people on the other side have a tendency to do? Yeah, go get them. Knew they were wrong. And you kind of, you may even look over. And you may look up going, uh-huh, yeah, yeah, tell them, tell them. Like, you're, you're almost like rooting for it, right? Beat them down, right? Because there's a little tendency of that, because you're, you're feeling vindicated. 
You may have been arguing with these people. You may be feeling vindicated. Is that, is that the kind of thing that he wants them to do? I think everyone, I heard a no. I heard an emphatic no. That's good. I don't think that that's what he wants them doing here. But when there be a tendency, oh, those are the people who come in and they're turning God's grace into lasciviousness. I know who they are. And he just let them have it. I, what should it kind of, what do you think it should possibly create inside you? Hopefully it would make you concerned for those people. Because he just gave an illustration of people being what? Destroyed. I think this is important because too many times within Christianity, because it's just a part of our human nature, we have a tendency to see the people who maybe have a false doctrine or a false philosophy or a false idea. We have a tendency to, re- to strip them of their humanity and only see them based off the view that they hold, the philosophy they hold, the doctrine they hold, the theology they hold, and we've stripped them of their humanity. They're identified now by their political party, their political ideology, their philosophical ideology, their theology. They're they're identified by something other than being a human being created in the image of God. And then what we have a tendency to do is want to see what? Them destroyed because we reduce them to the ideas that they hold. Does that make sense? Those are the, those are the turning God's grace into lasciviousness. That's, that's their Sunday school class. We know what's going on in their group, right? And all of a sudden you reduce all the people there to what? That! And now they just basically have been given a warning... Everyone has that, hey, remember those people in the past who did something similar? They were destroyed. So they will ultimately receive their destruction. And sometimes we feel almost, I don't know, we almost feel vindicated when we see people's judgment or even hell as some vindication that we were right and they were wrong. That's sick beyond anything I can even understand. We're talking about a human being being judged by an eternal God, possibly suffering for eternity. That's not about you being vindicated. That's a horrible thing. Does everybody understand that? That's a horrible thing. I just think we have a, it's very, it's so easy to do, especially in 2022, when a lot of times the person you're disagreeing with or the person you're arguing with is some anonymous person on on the internet. Well, you no longer see them as a human being. You just see them words on a screen and you want to destroy or or argue against those words. You got to see that there's a human being on the other side of those words. There's a human being there. Does that make sense? And sometimes we, it's like, we just reduce a person to an action, to a thought, and when they, if something happens to them, we feel vindicated. How do you feel vindicated? Right? That, that's not the way it should work. So I just think that we have to really think about these reminders. What, what's the motivation here? I think it should create, it, it, it's a reminder to, to think about, about it. Each reminder goes to both parties, yes? The parties who have a correct understanding of God's grace, 
and the party that doesn't. So the reminders go to both. On this side, let's say this is the side that has the right view of grace, because I'm standing on this side, okay? Right? Because we have the right view of grace, and, well, okay. We, we know about them, right? Okay, so on our side, it should be like, man, we should feel bad. We should, like, we, we don't want to see these people destroyed, right? No matter how much, how heated the arguments have been, no matter how heated the disagreements have been, we should want to see them come to a correct understanding of God's grace. Not, we don't want to see them abusing God's grace because we know judgment would be coming, Right? It's not for us to go, see, we were right the whole time. Told you. Told you I was right. Told you. Told you. You didn't listen to me. <laughs> told you. And I have a tendency to be the one going, told you I was right. I don't care about that point. I was right. I'm done with you. I'm done. I proved I was right. Okay. Oh, and come on. Y'all can all look all super spiritual. Okay. There's probably a little bit of that in all of us. Yes. Don't reduce a person to an ideology or even to a sin, don't reduce a person to that. Always, never strip a person of their humanity. If you don't get anything from this morning, never strip a person of their humanity. See the, the human beyond the ideology or the disagreement. That, that should scare you to death that there would be people, just like it happened with Israel, who... They were there, and then they witnessed and benefited from all this, and they ended up being destroyed. It would be horrible that there's people who've benefited from the grace of God in some way, shape, or form who would ultimately be destroyed. That should bother you. That should break you. That shouldn't make you feel vindicated. Does that make sense? Uh, Let me read this from a, a different translation. Now, I want to remind you Although you came to know all these things once and for all, that Jesus saved a people out of Egypt and later destroyed those who did not believe. That should bother you that it happened in the past? Yes? And the implication is it should bother you in the present because it's going to happen in the future. Nobody wants that to happen. Sometimes it, I, I just, it, it just seems like, especially within theology and within Christianity, it's just about being right, just about winning. And look, that man, there's, we, we got, by no means is he saying don't contend. You have to contend. But you can't forget the humanity of the people you're contending with. All right, that brings us to the next reminder. Right? We could have spent more time with that one, but I think everyone knows that story really well. Yes? Okay? The entire generation of people die as a result of their... I mean, that God's grace got them all the way to the promised land, and then they walk away, and then they all die. Okay? That's just... That's a horrible, horrible story. Everybody agree? All right. Verse 6. Whew! This is where things get crazy. All right. So we go from basically Israel... And now we go to the angels, which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation. He hath reserved in everlasting chains unto darkness, unto the judgment of the great day. All right. 
What are the basic elements in this reminder? We have angels. Something happens. Okay. They're in chains waiting for judgment. So we have angels. Something. I'm just going to put something happens because we. <laughs> there's a lot of speculation on what happens. Something happens. And now they're locked up in chains waiting for the day of judgment. What is significant about the, this? What, what do you think is significant about this reminder? Just from the uh, basic observation. Is that it's weird he goes from basically Israel, right? To angels. Seemingly to be a ma- major warning that even angels can't escape God's judgment if something goes horribly wrong. Right? So, what do we got to figure out? Well, what do you think, in this reminder, what's the, probably the first thing we need to figure out? We're not going to get far here, but what, what do you think we need to figure out? Yeah, well, what's, what's the words here that would be, maybe give us a clue? We have angels who did what? Kept not their first estate. Let's see if, if what the Greek, if there's a Greek phrase here that helps us in some way, shape, or form understand what this is referring to. Okay. So I'm going to make sure I've got everything closed here. All right. We have the angels which not kept their first estate. Their first estate. That's the Greek, for, uh, Greek word that translated that way. It means this. Or it's the, this Greek Strong's word. Strong's G746. Arche. Arche. Arche, if you use that guttural sound. Arche, it's used how many times? 58 times, and it's, uh, it's translated beginning 40 times, which is interesting, principality eight times, corner two times, first two times, and miscellaneous six times. Does that give you any idea? What, what would we do with the fact that it's translated beginning 40 times? Think of... Go back to the angels. Whatever their beginning was, they left that beginning. All right, so something changed with these angels. What is Strong's definition? Commencement. Various applications of order, time, place, or rank. Beginning, corner, at the first estate, magistrate, power, principality, principle, rule. That, that's, that's a lot thrown in there. Outline of biblical usage. Does this help any? Beginning or origin. So again, this would go back to the idea that whatever the angels' origin was, whatever their beginning was, these specific angels leave that beginning or leave that origin. Right. What else do we have? The person or thing that commences, the first person or thing in a series, the leader, that by which anything begins to be the origin, the active cause, the extremity of a thing, of the corners of a cell, the first place, principality, rule of angels and demons. Okay, now if we go with possibly rule, that, that, that's not very helpful. It seems to be the best way to understand this is that these angels left whatever their beginning was. Whatever the beginning was, they leave it in some way, shape, or form. 
right? And what's the result of them leaving it? They're in chains. All right, this kind of removes one possibility, right? We know of Satan, right? Some, depending on you getting into a whole argument about the Latin Vulgate, whatever. Some say Lucifer. We get into a whole argument about that, the history of that word. But we have Lucifer or Satan. And the basic understanding is at some point he rebelled against God and was what? Thrown out of heaven. Right? Everybody knows that basic concept. All right, well, if we, if we try to take this to that, there's a couple of problems, right? What's the problem? Well, Thank you, thank you. Satan is not in chains, right? The whole point that later on he's going to supposedly be bound for a thousand years, well, we can get into all the arguments about that, but he appears now, according to 1 Peter, to be doing what? Roaming about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Clearly, we see his activity in the Bible, do we not? He shows up there in Job, correct? He shows up in the garden, Correct? Other, obviously he has some argument with Michael, the archangel, about the body of Moses. Correct? He's all over the New Testament, yes. He tempts Jesus. There's demonic possession. There's demons. None of them seem locked up. So that, that doesn't seem... So it can't be that they were locked up after the initial rebellion. So what, what did these angels do and what got them locked up and what do we learn from this? It's a weird example or a reminder. I'll just throw you out a hint. At least, now there's massive disagreement on this, so please don't even think that I'm being dogmatic because there is so much disagreement in church history. Many believe that these are angels who are involved in something that happens in Genesis 6. Okay? That's what some believe, that you have angel, fallen angels who end up in having relations with the daughters of men, which then would cause a major problem of basically corrupting the entire human race. And if you corrupt the human race, then they cannot be redeemed from their sin. Meaning that's why the flood had to wipe everyone out. That's the speculation, and that these angels engaged in this activity are immediately, basically judged and immediately placed in chains so that they can never engage in such activity again. Others will say that makes absolutely no sense because angels would not be able to engage in such activity. And there's arguments all day long. I just know we've got to identify whoever these angels are. Here's the bizarre part. The implication is, what? That the people he's writing to, they're super familiar with the story. Because what good is a reminder if nobody knows what you were reminding them of. I know that. I try to remind you guys of what we just preached. And sometimes you'll look at me like, what are you talking about? And I have to ask, well, I don't know how good my reminder was, right? Okay. If, I, if you don't know what I'm talking about, this doesn't even serve as a reminder. What does it serve? Sometimes my reviews aren't reviews. It's teaching you the first time because clearly you forgot the previous seven, right? Yes? Agreed? So this, they... It, the implication, they know this story. They know this story. So we're like, where, what is going on? That's what we're going to have to figure out. Right? 
and that we'll see what the reminder is. So we stop there. So we do have, do we have a good outline on the reminder section? Do we have some verses that don't seem to fit? Yes. What are we going to do with those verses? Okay, we'll wait at some other point. Okay, we'll figure that out. Okay, what's the main thing we learned from the first reminder? Or the lesson I want you to take away from it? Don't strip them of their humanity. Because if all this turns into is like, whoo you guys are going to get judged. I just think that that's not what the goal here is. And that's why he started, remember how he gave in the greeting? He gave them that blessing, which involved what three things? Mercy, peace, and love. So in contending, we have to remember the mercy, peace, and love. Mercy, peace, and love wouldn't be celebrating the fact that the people who have turned God's grace into lasciviousness is going to be destroyed. It should break you and make you grieve that that's going to happen and do everything you can to contend with them that it doesn't happen. Does that make sense? All right, we'll have to stop there. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this morning. As they forgot reminders, we forget the reminders of your word. And sometimes we so forget a very basic reminder that every person is created in the image of God and we need to see their humanity and the fact that they are created in your image and not reduce them to something less. Forgive us when we do this and help us learn and remember this as we look at these very important illustrations in the book of Jude about contending for the faith. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said...